Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott, Volume 2, Chapter 28. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2, Chapter 28. Unfit to live or die, O marble heart. After him, fellows, drag him to the block. Measure for measure. The jail at the county town of the Shire was one of those old-fashioned dungeons which disgraced Scotland until of late years. When the prisoners and their guard arrived there, Hatterake, whose violence and strength were well known, was secured in what was called the Condemned Ward. This was a large apartment near the top of the prison. A round bar of iron about the thickness of a man's arm above the elbow crossed the apartment horizontally at the height of about six inches from the floor and its extremities were strongly built into the wall at either end. Hatterake's ankles were secured within shackles, which were connected by a chain at the distance of about four feet with a large iron ring, which travelled upon the bar we have described. Thus a prisoner might shuffle along the length of the bar from one side of the room to another, but could not retreat further from it in any other direction than the brief length of the chain admitted. When his feet had been thus secured, the keeper removed his handcuffs and left his person at liberty in other respects. A pallet bed was placed close to the bar of iron so that the shackled prisoner might lie down at pleasure, still fastened to the iron bar in the manner described. Hatterake had not been long in this place of confinement before Glossin arrived at the same prison house. In respect to his comparative rank and education, he was not ironed, but placed in a decent apartment under the inspection of Macoffock who, since the destruction of the Bridewell at Port and Ferry by the mob, had acted here as an under-turnkey. When Glossin was enclosed within this room, and had solitude and leisure to calculate all the chances against him and in his favour, he could not prevail upon himself to consider the game as desperate. The estate is lost, he said. That must go, and between Playdell and Macmorlan they'll cut down my claim on it to a trifle. My character? But if I get off with life and liberty, I'll win money yet, and varnish that over again. I knew not of the gauger's job until the rascal had done the deed, and though I had some advantage by the contraband, that is no felony. But the kidnapping of the boy, there they touch me closer. Let me see, this Bertram was a child at the time, his evidence must be imperfect. The other fellow is a deserter, a gypsy, and an outlaw. Meg Merrily's, damn her, is dead. These infernal bills, Hatterick brought them with him, I suppose, to have the means of threatening me or extorting money from me. I must endeavour to see the rascal, must get him to stand steady, must persuade him to put some other colour upon the business. His mind teeming with schemes of future deceit to cover former villainy, he spent the time in arranging and combining them until the hour of supper. Macguffock attended as turnkey on this occasion. He was, as we know, the old and special acquaintance of the prisoner who was now under his charge. After giving the turnkey a glass of brandy and sounding him with one or two cajoling speeches, Glossin made it his request that he would help him to an interview with Dirk Hatterake. Impossible, utterly impossible, it's contrary to the express orders of Mr. Macmorlan and the captain, as the head jailer of a county jail is called in Scotland, would never forgive me. But why should he know of it? said Glossin slipping a couple of guineas into Macguffock's hand. The turnkey weighed the gold and looked sharp at Glossin. Aye, aye, Mr. Glossin, ye ken the ways of this place. Looky, at lock-up hour, I'll return and bring ye upstairs to him. But ye must stay all night in his cell, for I am under necessity to carry the keys to the captain for the night, 
and I cannot let you out again until morning. Then I'll visit the wards half an hour earlier than usual, and you may get out and be snug in your own berth when the captain gangs his rounds. When the hour of ten had peeled from the neighbouring steeple, McGuffet came prepared with a small dark lantern. He said softly to Glossin, Slip your shoes off and follow me. When Glossin was out of the door, McGuffock, as if in the execution of his ordinary duty, and speaking to a prisoner within, called aloud, Good night to you, sir, and locked the door, clattering the bolts with much ostentatious noise. He then guided Glossin up a steep and narrow stair, at the top of which was the door of the condemned ward. He unbarred and unlocked it, and giving Glossin the lantern, made a sign to him to enter, and locked the door behind him with the same affected accuracy. In the large dark cell into which he was thus introduced, Glossin's feeble light for some time enabled him to discover nothing. At length he could dimly distinguish the pallet bed stretched on the floor beside the great iron bar which traversed the room, and on that pallet reposed the figure of a man. Glossin approached him. Dirk Hatterach. Donner and Heigel, it is his voice, said the prisoner, sitting up and clashing his fetters as he rose. Then my dream is true. Be gone and leave me to myself. It will be your best. What, my good friend, said Glossin? Will you allow the prospect of a few weeks' confinement to depress your spirit? Yes, answered the ruffian sullenly. When I am only to be released by a halter. Let me alone and go about your business and turn the lamp from my face. Pshaw, my dear Dirk, don't be afraid, said Glossin. I have a glorious plan to make all right. To the bottomless pit with your plans, replied his accomplice. You have planned me out of ship, cargo, and life, and I dreamt this moment that Meg Merrilies dragged you here by the hair and gave me the long clasp knife she used to wear. You don't know what she said. Sturmwetter, it will be your wisdom not to tempt me. But Hatterick, my good friend, do but rise and speak to me, said Glossin. I will not, answered the savage doggedly. You have caused all the mischief. You would not let Meg keep the boy. She would have returned him after he had forgot all. Why, Hatterick, you are turned driveller. Vetter, will you deny that the cursed attempt at Port and Ferry, which lost both sloop and crew, was your device for your own job? But the goods, you know. Curse the goods, said the smuggler. We could have got plenty more, but the devil, to lose the ship and the fine fellows, and my own life for a cursed coward villain, that always works his own mischief with other people's hands? Speak to me no more. I'm dangerous. But Dirk, but Hatterick, hear me only a few words. Hagel nine. Only one sentence. Thousand curses, nine. At least get up for an obstinate Dutch brute, said Glossin, losing his temper and pushing Hatterick with his foot. Donner and Blitzen, said Hatterick, springing up and grappling with him. You will have it then. Glossin struggled and resisted, but owing to his surprise at the fury of the assault, so ineffectually that he fell under Hatterick, the back part of his neck coming full upon the iron bar with stunning violence. The death grapple continued. The room immediately below the condemned ward, being that of Glossin, was of course empty, but the inmates of the second apartment beneath felt the shock of Glossin's heavy fall, and heard a noise as of struggling and of groans. But all sounds of horror were too congenial to this place to excite much curiosity or interest. In the morning, faithful to his promise, McGuffet came. Mr. Glossin, said he in a whispering voice. Call louder, answered Dirk Hatterick. Mr. Glossin, for God's sake, come awa. He'll hardly do that without help, said Hatterick. What are you chattering there for, McGuffock? called out the captain from below. Come awa, for God's sake, Mr. Glossin, repeated the turnkey. At this moment the jailer made his appearance with a light. Great was his surprise and even horror 
to observe Glosson's body lying doubled across the iron bar, in a posture that excluded all idea of his being alive. Hatterick was quietly stretched upon his pallet within a yard of his victim. On lifting Glossin, it was found that he had been dead for some hours. His body bore uncommon marks of violence. The spine where it joins the skull had received severe injury by his first fall. There were distinct marks of strangulation about the throat, which corresponded with the blackened state of his face. The head was turned backward over the shoulder, as if the neck had been wrung round with desperate violence so that it would seem that his inveterate antagonist had fixed a fatal grip upon the wretch's throat, and never quitted it while life lasted. The lantern, crushed and broken to pieces, lay beneath the body. Macmorlan was in the town and came instantly to examine the corpse. "'What brought Glossin here?' he said to Hatterick. "'The devil,' answered the ruffian. "'And what did you do to him?' "'Sent him to hell before me,' replied the miscreant. "'Wretch,' said Macmorlan, you have crowned a life spent without a single virtue with the murder of your own miserable accomplice. Virtue! exclaimed the prisoner. Donna, I was always faithful to my ship owners, always accounted for cargo to the last stiver. Harky, let me have pen and ink and I'll write an account of the whole to our house and leave me alone a couple of hours, will ye? And let them take away that piece of carrion, Donna Vetter. Macmorlan deemed it the best way to humour the savage. He was furnished with writing materials and left alone. When they again opened the door, it was found that this determined villain had anticipated justice. He had adjusted a cord taken from the truckle bed and attached it to a bone, the relic of his yesterday's dinner, which he had contrived to drive into a crevice between two stones in the wall at a height as great as he could reach standing upon the bar. Having fastened the noose, he had the resolution to drop his body as if to fall on his knees and to retain that posture until resolution was no longer necessary. The letter he had written to his owners, though chiefly upon the business of their trade, contained many allusions to the Junker of Ellangowan, as he called him, and afforded absolute confirmation of all Meg Merrilies and her nephew had told. To dismiss the catastrophe of these two wretched men, I shall only add that MacGuffock was turned out of office, notwithstanding his declaration, which he offered to attest by oath, that he had locked Glosson safely in his own room upon the night preceding his being found dead in Dirk Hatterake's cell. His story, however, found faith with the worthy Mr. Scree and other lovers of the marvellous, who still hold that the enemy of mankind brought these two wretches together upon that night by supernatural interference, that they might fill up the cup of their guilt and receive its mead by murder and suicide. End of Guy Mannering, Volume 2 Chapter 28